Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bible Archives. And today we are going to look at a chapter in Genesis that does not get much attention. So Genesis chapter 32 is a big chapter and has a, a story that gets recounted and retold again and again and again. And I don't know if it's just because of the monumentality of that chapter, but the chapter after it, Genesis 33, doesn't get the same amount of attention. In my opinion, it's just as interesting, though. And so uh, I, I hope that we can maybe shed some light on the depth and the complexity and the importance of what's going on in this chapter, because it's almost as if you can't completely understand Genesis chapter 32 without seeing the follow-up, seeing what happens as a result of Genesis 32. So last chapter, Genesis 32, we, we saw this transformative conflict and it seemed to culminate everything with Jacob's life and his re-entry in, into being a patriarch of the covenant. So uh, what had happened is he eventually, he takes solace on the other side of a river while he has these entourages and companies uh, kind of diverting in different sequences and preparation for the onslaught of his brother Esau. It's coming for him. And Jacob assumes that Esau is coming to try and kill him because Jacob is back in his home territory for the first time since he ran away to escape Esau. And then he got married and he had the children and the whole thing with Laban. And that leads him to this point. And the transformation happens. Jacob comes uh, into this wrestling match that we talked about last episode. But now what was sort of building as we got into that moment in Genesis 32, now it's going to actually happen. Now he's going to actually see Esau. So he confronted himself. So now it's on to the next step. And this cataclysmic moment, it, it's finished, right? That happens in the last chapter, but it's also not finished. In Genesis chapter 33, uh, verse 1 dives right into this. And it begins with Jacob looking up and seeing Esau with 400 men. Sounds to me like he's coming to kill him. The, those are fighting words. Yeah, it sounds like it to me. Um, and this is pretty typical uh, explanations within ancient documentation. Um, you, would, you would annotate the amount of men, uh, which was a, kind of a way of saying the amount of warriors. Okay. Um, so that's pretty normal. There's also something to be said here, too, of uh, in comparison to a national military 400 men's not a lot no it isn't um and you can so you can look at this one way which is that's an army that's a military they're coming to fight and i think that's implied here um you can also look at this because when when israel is described as wandering through the wilderness on their way to the promised land like the book of numbers for example okay. you'll see them use the same language they describe the amount of men which indicates the amount of the tribe as a whole so this whole caravan of nomadic people okay um and i think that is possibly implied here as well that esau's uh kind of vagabond group is Wandering around, there's 400 men. So if they were to fight, that's how many warriors, but they're also wandering around as a company. Okay, that's like the size of his tribe then. It's about 400 men. Yeah, and that's what makes so, us a little bit ambiguous. Yeah. Is he coming to fight Jacob? Jacob's assuming so. Sure. Um, and that assumption leads to what Jacob does. He divides his children up among Leah and Rachel and then the two servant wives. 
and and this is a example how he divides his children is very telling and and we weren't really disclosed that information in the last chapter and now we are kind of told and this isn't going to be the last time he divides his children up uh, this this is kind of a predicator of what's going to happen with blessing and the covenant and yeah. handing that off um and at the end of genesis you're going to see that but we do get a bit of foreshadowing here um, and this would be this this section also kind of offers us that common theme in Genesis, which is a, a genealogical account of the offspring. Right. So we're kind of told, okay, here's here's the list of everybody's here. We have that accounted for. Um, so you're kind of seeing basic information alongside of interpretive information. Um, and the servant wives and their children go in front. So that kind of expresses their least priority. And then Leah. And her children, so slight step down, um, and this would include Jacob's technical firstborn. Yeah, that seems odd that he would consider mm-hmm. him lower on the scale. Right, it's breaking the mm-hmm. norm. Of yeah, that. for sure. But Genesis has already been breaking that norm. Right. Um, and then Rachel and Joseph go last, and as we move into uh, the end of Genesis, that is going to become a really important theme. But it's hinted at here. Um, now, in verse 3, we also see that Jacob goes on ahead of them. So if you think back to before, Jacob sends everyone out first, and they're all ahead of Jacob. Now, Jacob goes out ahead of everyone else. So something seems different here. Mm-hmm. And this is our first clue that uh, chapter 33 is important. So before, he sends out his messengers, entourages with gifts, and the whole sequence is supposed to be so that when, when Esau finally gets to Jacob, maybe Esau won't be so angry. Yeah. So Jacob going ahead is diverting from that original plan. And his actions here show a real submissiveness. All right. So he had used language of servant and bestowed gifts, but now he actually prostrates himself on the ground and he does this seven times. And that's not arbitrary. That that detail is actually telling us something about Jacob's disposition. Absolutely. Um, there is what they call the Armana letters that are correspondences of the Pharaoh Amenhotep with his vassals. And that was the number of times that they were expected to bow to him as they came to greet him. So that's something that would be considered, I guess you could say, a pattern or a norm, perhaps, mm-hmm. of that time period. So now we're starting to see some of that Egyptian uh, culture added into here, too. And and you've seen some references to to Egypt throughout. You know, Abram goes to Egypt, Isaac goes to Egypt. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, if you know how Genesis ends, you know, Egypt becomes a a really major player in the narrative. And also just keep in mind, Genesis is the prequel. Exodus is the main main story. So we know that Egypt is going to be of of, you know sort of top of mind in any of this reading. So having a detail that's influenced by the Armana letters is not only uh, important to reading the Hebrew scriptures as a whole. Those letters are are a monumental piece of history that has helped us understand the Bible. Um, But to see them included here is like, oh yeah, so there's some influence there for sure. but if, and then you have the the factor of seven in the Jewish imagination, which is mm-hmm. completeness. And so it's uh, Jacob here is acting as complete vassal and doing so as completely as possible. And he's doing this as he's moving. So by the time he gets to seven, 
now he he is near Esau. So, you know, he'd mm-hmm. bow down, walk a little bit, bow down, walk a little bit, bow down. And now he's he's near Esau. Yeah. And this will be the first time they've been near each other since, you know, brother was chasing him around with a knife ready to kill him. So that takes us to verse four. Um, and you get to verse four and we find out Esau binds him, covers his face, carries him off to be tortured. Mm. <laughs> which is not what happens. No. But that's Jacob's language so far makes us think that that's what's going to happen here. And none of it does. Mm-mm. Instead, and I, and I, I started that way because I want to make this contrast because instead Esau runs out to meet him. So instead of dominant uh, vassal relationship, you get generous hospitality relationship. That response by Esau uh, is really monumental. And the contrast between those two is trying to paint Esau in a particular light. He should have done the torture scene. He had yeah. every right to, mm-hmm. but he doesn't. Uh, now, Christian readers of um, Genesis 33 here are going to, and rightly so, think of the Gospel of Luke in the prodigal son story. Yeah, and, and that's a story about a man and two sons, Mm -hmm. which I think is heavily influenced just by Genesis alone. Um, Most of the patriarchs have multiple sons, and the relationship between those two sons is complicated. Right. Um, And so certainly this is a theme that Jesus recognized, and, and he inherits this from his Jewish background. But the whole notion of the father in that parable running out to the younger son is because the running to greet a traveler was a sign of hospitality. Yes, like, kind of like the way Abraham did with a- the angels. Abraham does it. You see other tribes do that mm-hmm. to um, to some of the Jewish folk. That That's utmost generosity. So thinking of it in that terms, as opposed to the torture scene, mm-hmm. shows what Esau is doing here. And so uh, if this is an actual battle scene, and the one general is seeing the opposite submit in you know this Armana letter fashion. Uh, that's normal. It's all well and good. Right. You're going to wait for the opportunity to uh, go up to the opposing party, start to going through terms. You know, you're probably going to do a blood path covenant kind oh, of thing, yeah. and uh, you know that's that that's what you would expect here. Esau running completely subverts that battle environment that we've been seeing so far, at least from Jacob's point of view. Esau's showing extravagant generosity. And this is a whole different level of of submission. The one with power here, Esau, releases that power to share it with the other, who is the one doing the submitting. So Esau, let's just paint it this way. Esau could have taken full advantage of Jacob's lowly state mm-hmm. and used it for his own gain, acquiring all sorts of things. Sure, that would have been typical. Maybe even thrown some deception in there. Right. <laughs> and he doesn't. He actually then, in the face of his submitting brother Jacob, mm-hmm. Esau submits himself and releases all of that power that he could use. So Big brother Esau runs out and embraces Jacob and kisses him. And then we find out that both of them weep. And, and I get why Jacob weeps. Been a long night. Yeah. Got a lot of anxiety. 
could have been killed here. And instead, it's the complete opposite. So you, you kind of understand like, okay, Jacob, this is like monumental relief. But why does Esau weep? Because this guy who's laying prostrate in front of him took everything from him. Esau was a failure in comparison to Jacob. And, and Esau apparently is not behaving to current and common presuppositions. Essentially, I think the picture here is Esau, like this guy gets it. This guy is embodying the covenant and the blessing and the divine disposition that we have really yet to see from any of the patriarchs so far, especially Jacob. It's almost like Esau is the opposite of Jacob here. You know, he's, you got all those other details. He's hairy. He's a hunter. He marries the wrong people. He doesn't always seem to, to get it. But he behaves almost in direct contrast to Jacob. And I should add, he behaves in the way that Jacob and Isaac and Abram should have been behaving the whole time. Esau really seems like the first potential patriarch to do the thing right. And yet he's not the patriarch here. And it seems kind of odd that he isn't, really, because there would be no reason for him not to be. He was one of Rebecca's sons. One of Rebecca's sons. He's mm-hmm. technically the firstborn. Sure. Uh, now, he does make his fair amount of mistakes. Right. And we don't get the whole side of Esau's story, but it's just interesting that here the picture portrayed is like, oh, Esau, you're doing what Jacob should have been doing. Yeah. And how Esau responds in this embodies the whole notion of the covenant, you know, dating back to Genesis 12. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that all this that this happens. and the, But that picture is intentional. One, you've got Jacob acting differently than he has so far. Right. The very fact that he's being honest and submitting and not just looking out for his own self-preservation, something's changed. Well, we know that something changed back in chapter 32. You also get this picture of Esau and, and the Edomites are going to become an enemy. Oh, yeah. And here, their, their, uh, their, their primary heir of the Edomites isn't behaving all that badly. Yeah, he kind of changes too. A, a lot of Genesis uh, is based on portraying Israel's future enemies in a way that justifies the relationship with them. Esau here is, at, at the least, he's complicated. He's, he's got this weird backstory, made some mistakes, also doing some things right that the patriarchs didn't do. Mm-hmm. So it's just worth pointing that out. All right, so that takes us to verse 5. Uh, this very short chapter that moves very slowly if you're willing to let it. So Esau then, uh, he's now seen, you know, this entourage of, of Jacob and this caravan of Jacob and his tribe and, and his family. And so he inquires about them and he sees, you know, the women and the children and he asks who they are. And I can't help but think if you read this in a particular way, that part of Esau's question here is, wait a second, are all of these your wives? <laughs> because mom and dad seem to imply that I was wrong for taking multiple wives. Well, so <laughs> some of the criticism levied on Esau or that he projected onto himself, uh, Jacob doing the same thing. Again, it's that complicated picture. Kind of, although I think that the reason they were upset with Esau was because of the, the ethnicity rather than the multiplicity right. of that, wives. It was because they were Canaanite wives. No, they were Hittites. Were they Hittites? Yeah, it, and that's why I say yeah. 
the projection he gave himself. Sure. Because he's right. never criticized for that by experience. He's criticized for their ethnicity. Yes. Uh, but he doesn't quite make sense. He almost he never he, really does. He doesn't yeah. get it. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I think I took too many wives. No, no, it was about the ethnicity. Mm-hmm. That's why Jacob's doing this. But I can't help but think that that's part of this conversation. Yeah, it does here, seem right? like it. Yeah. Um, but Jacob's response is worth diving into. He says, these are the children whom God has graciously, graciously given your servant. Now, wait a second. Just last chapter, Jacob was taking credit for everything. He's also leaving out an important detail because this is the family that he worked some pretty heavy deceptions to acquire. So Jacob's saying that God was behind all of that, right? It, it's not how quite how the events were portrayed in the previous chapters. Mm-hmm. But now all of a sudden he's saying, well, God graciously gave them to me. He left some bits out there, Jacob. <laughs> It's kind of like his Facebook page, you know. See how nice it looks? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're um, not going to discuss all that stuff in the background. Yeah, writing your own auto, autobiography exactly. gives you that uh, ability. Uh, but then Jacob also says, given to your servant. And he's speaking to Esau here. Yeah. He doesn't say, gave to me or gave to your brother, who is me. He says, your servant. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of court and legal language. This is back to the vassalization happening between Jacob and his brother Esau. So in verse six, the the servant wives and their families bow, then Leah and her children, and finally Joseph and Rachel. So you see that same order show up again. That's Mm -hmm. telling us something. And Esau responds by saying, what is all this about? The bowing, the gifts, the envoys. What's going on here, Jacob? And it's like there's this giant elephant in the room that you kind of just want them to acknowledge. Like no one is talking about how the last time they were in the same place, Jacob worked his deceptive magic, took everything, ran away, and Esau wanted to kill him. It feels like the kind of dancing around it. We all know that's the situation, but it's not getting brought up. So Jacob, you know, here... He could say, oh, so that you don't kill me because, you know, the thing that happened. Instead, he says to find favor with my Lord. Mm-hmm. Another uh, legal title of submission. Um, and then that kind of moves into verse 9. And now we're going to get even more contrast between the two. So all this formal language by Jacob, nobody's mentioning the deception that happened. And Esau responds, I have enough, my brother. Yeah. Jacob so far has not called Esau brother. So Jacob has been directing his language to Esau a lot, never once has said brother. Esau's the first one to do it, which part of that is because Jacob is submitting here. So mm-hmm. he, Esau has to be the one to make the claim. When Esau does then, that is a restorative act. For, for Jacob. Yeah. So I think that's important to point out. As Jacob approaches, he is not approaching his brother. He's assuming I have lost that claim. Right, exactly. Esau restores it here. Yeah, I think that's interesting that he uses that kind of language because he totally subverts that kind of war language, that vassal language mm. that Jacob is trying to give him then. And because if anybody deserves justice, it's Esau. And yet right. he's speaking language of restorative justice because he would rather give up his right in order to restore the relationship with, with Jacob. Yeah. Uh, And so if you're thinking about this, up until that point, they're not brothers. Mm -hmm. That's been lost. 
Esau, because of Jacob's submission, is the only one who can bring that back. So Esau has the choice. Mm -hmm. Do I destroy this servant, this vassal? Right. Or do I treat him as brother? Well, yep. I have enough of my brother. Yeah. And I mean, he could turn him into a vassal. He could say, yeah, fine, I'll let you live, but you're going to have to pay me tribute or whatever. Right. You know, give me these things. Turn over your wealth to me. But no, he doesn't. He's like, I have enough, brother. I don't need your things. Well, and I, th but I think that is so important to see. Is mm -hmm. that as soon as he says says brother, that it's almost like a relief to Jacob. Yeah, the okay. whole tone changes. All here. right, so this is what this is where we're at now. Um, but Esau also says, "I have enough," and he tells Jacob to keep it for himself. So again, Esau has the opportunity to acquire, mm -hmm. and he turns it down. That's a first from this family. <laughs> it sure is. That hasn't happened yet. Abraham, Isaac, now Jacob. Mm -hmm. You haven't seen that. Esau's the one to do that. And then Jacob responds in verse 10 about finding favor, having his gift accepted, you know, which this should all sound like Laban language here. Right. And if Esau accepts the gift, then that is contractual for peace. So right. Jacob's still kind of playing the legal game here of... Oh, no, 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 take that, right. please, and then we're good. We call it good. And, Jay, and, and uh, Esau saying, no, no, brother, that's not how I'm doing this. Yeah. So uh, you, you're starting to get a sense that Esau has one disposition, a very noble, admirable disposition. Jacob, even though he's the submissive one, mm -hmm. he's the vassal here, he's in the weaker position, is still kind of playing the game. He's, well, he has that transactional mindset. You see that all mm -hmm. through the way he does everything. Well, you should start thinking, has Jacob actually changed? Yeah. He's different, but does he need another wrestling match? <laughs> Maybe so. Well, it's a process, you know. It's a, it's a process. <laughs> um, so here's the other, uh, this other line, which I think belongs in the conversation from Genesis 32. Um. In Genesis 32, you have this moment where uh, the presence of God is is notated into the story. And we kind of talked last episode about what was that, how did that work? Um, you get the same kind of language here in this chapter. For truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God, since you have received me with such favor. That's what Jacob says to Esau. How Esau is portrayed as responding here is not just with hospitality, but with this sort of God-breathed generosity of divine hospitality. Esau has acted in such a way that Jacob claims to be encountering God through him. Mm -hmm. And this is showing a huge perspective within Judaism. So yeah, you get monotheism, all that, yes. But the concept of, of what eventually becomes known as Imago Dei within uh, Christian theology, which is just a reference to the image of God, that goes back to Genesis 1 and is so, so essential to understanding Jewish consciousness. God is not just some transcendent being. God is also imminent, profoundly present. And the primary way this is experienced is through other people. And because this God can't, can't just show up, so so transcendent, so wholly other, can't just show up. Mm -hmm. It has to be this subtle, you could say incarnational means of being present in the world, and that's how God shows up all the time. 
Jacob encountered it in the wrestling, and now he claims it about his brother Esau. That's huge. Yeah, it's like he's showing, like God showing up in that restorative moment. Mm. Yeah, and and that's that's a really good way to put that. When you encounter that kind of grace and hospitality, mm-hmm. um, you're encountering something of God. Yeah. And again, but even think about this language. Esau gets that on mm-hmm. him. He is the face of God to someone. Abraham wasn't described that way. Yeah. Isaac wasn't described that way. Jacob certainly has not been described that way. Esau is. It's always that subversive person that mm-hmm. seems to show up. But you almost feel yourself being tugged of like, give Esau the birthright and the blessing back. Mm-hmm. Guy deserves it. Like, what is Israel like, the, the nation, if Esau has his name changed and not Jacob? What's that nation like? How does that hmm. impact the story? Yeah. If it's built on this premise of divine hospitality and utmost generosity and, and, and forgiveness and grace and all of that stuff, what's that nation like? But that's not what happens. No. You know, it's the, the good guy doesn't win here. Instead, Jacob, Esau almost just becomes a medium to Jacob's self-revelation of him continuing to go through this process of finding himself. So he encounters God in the wrestling match. Okay, now he encounters his God through his brother who should have had all the covenant stuff in the first place but doesn't and is doing the right thing with it. All that amounts to is Jacob getting to see a little bit more of how this God works through his brother that he deceived. Uh And now he's going to keep moving on. And then we get more more Jacob language as the as the text goes on here. He says, God has dealt graciously with me. So he's been blessed, uh, you know, while he was stealing from people. <laughs> uh, but he says, you know, I was blessed and uh, I have everything that I want. And just to highlight this contrast, Esau says, I have enough. Jacob says, I have everything. Very different postures. Very different in he, the world. And he does have everything if you look at it from a covenantal point of view. Mm-hmm. And Esau, Esau can't help but feel bad for the guy. Yeah, he kind of, he's sitting there doing everything right. And he's so often portrayed as kind of the bad guy, the stupid one. Yes. Yeah. And he sits there and says, I have enough. Mm-hmm. Like he could have used this whole opportunity to say, I'm going to take it back. Mm hmm. And I will be remembered. And it almost, yeah, it almost sounds like Jacob tried to give it to him back in a way. Jacob had no choice. Yeah, he did. And no. Esau could have used that power. And mm-hmm. instead Esau says, no, I have enough. Right. I'm good. And Jacob says, well, I have everything. Then. Dang. Poor guy. <laughs> and remember, Jacob's everything being a result of, of God's grace. You know, I'm using air quotes. It's not so simple, you know. So this is a worthwhile conversation here. You know, I've heard people argue for wealth accumulation using Abraham and Jacob as examples. They say, see, look at Abraham, look at Jacob. God wants you to be rich. The problem is that the text and the narrative are not so clear on whether their wealth accumulation is a good thing, nor that has anything to do with God. In fact, I think it's easier to make a case that all of the wealth accumulation here is portrayed negatively and actually contrarily to God's purposes in the narratives themselves. 
what's going on here, this acquiring is always problematic. Yeah, it does seem to be. If for no other reason than any blessing, which doesn't necessarily imply wealth, is supposed to continue out to everyone and everything else. And with Abraham, with Isaac, even with Jacob, that does, that's not happening. Where do you see it? Esau, who says, I have enough. Mm-hmm. So if, if you want to use a chapter like Genesis 33 or just any of these patriarch cycles to go, you know, God wants to bless you and, you know, have you prosper and be rich. If you just give me some more money, yeah. you know, if you're going to use it that way, then read, read it. Mm-hmm. And actually pay attention to the nuance of the story because the guy who who looks to be fulfilling the covenantal role is the one who says, I'm content. The guy who is questionable throughout is going, I have everything. And oh, see, while I was stealing from folks and deliberately disobeying what I was supposed to be doing, you know, God was blessing me the whole time. God's been very gracious to me. It doesn't quite line up. Yeah. So it's possible to talk about wealth as a gift when it is really a direct result of poor judgment and selfishness. And if we want to go so far, evil. It's possible to convince ourselves of God's graciousness and blessing and use all the language while neglecting the deception. That's what I think is going on here. And particularly, if, if the wealth accumulation is a result of ambition at the expense of others, we might be missing the point. Yeah. That's Jacob here. Esau is the direct opposite. Anyways, enough of that. Verse 12, moving swiftly on. Um, now we kind of get the same pattern we've been seeing of, of, of separation. The, the story is going to continue now and it's going to end with, uh, hey, we got to kind of wrap up this conversation between these two people right. so we can get on with uh, the other narrative. Um, and that's what's going on here. Esau says uh, that he'll he'll go ahead and accompany Jacob um, so they would move on together. Right. And Jacob turns it down. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting what Jacob says here. He talks about how his, uh, his children are frail. The flocks and herds are, are nursing so they can't be overdriven. Or they'll die. It's like Jacob, you just offered all this stuff <laughs> to to Esau. It's like I, I know I just offered you all this as if they were in perfect condition, but you know they really aren't. So now that <laughs> yeah. we're good, uh, you know I got to circle back. By the way, <laughs> and continue this fictional narrative I've created because I'm never just honest up front. You can see this going on in the story. So he says, you go on ahead and I'll move nice and slow. I'll meet you back in Seir. Uh, Esau even offers to leave some people behind to help. Uh-huh, right. You know? Like either this guy is super nice and ultra forgiving or he smells what Jacob is up to here. Yeah. And he's going like, wait, wait, I was, I just gave you your life back and you're still, you're still playing the game. Yeah. So, Either way, no one names this tension that still seems to be there. And Esau heads back, and Jacob doesn't. He goes to Sukkoth, builds a home, settles down a bit, and then goes safely to the city of Shechem. This means he's back in Canaan. Right. Shechem will eventually become the capital of the northern tribes, and way down the road is what becomes Samaria. 
So poor little Jacob with his frail children and laboring animals, he camps outside the city, military language, uh-huh. buys some land, so he has ownership of property now, sure. and he erects an altar. So he got the Esau thing out of the way, and now it's time to get things moving again. And that separation between the brothers now marks that the story is going to go in a new direction. It always has to be that way. You see it all through these uh, patriarchal cycles where there's a separation of people. So, you know, Abraham had to separate from Lot before he could get that blessing. And then uh, Ishmael had to separate from Isaac before Isaac could be blessed. And now here Jacob has to separate from Esau because he's the covenantal patriarch and Esau is not. The only thing that's unusual about this is that there is no blessing at the end of this one. And it's hard to say what that means, but, you know, maybe because the story is continuing now, you know, I think after this we get, what, some genealogies. Well, we get the story of Dinah and then there's some genealogies and And then then the Joseph cycle begins. It moves into Joseph. And eventually you will get the blessing at the end of Genesis. Um, But that kind of wraps up Esau's narrative as well. Yes, Esau is a character who will show up again. Right. Um, even in uh, like a book like Isaiah, you see his name. Pop oh, up. yeah. And the Edomites become this tribe, but there's no more interaction uh, with Esau. There's a lot of complicated stuff going on there between Israel and, East and Edom, mm-hmm. because Edom was one of the people who went in when Babylon conquered uh, Jerusalem. They kind of went in there and plundered too, and they sort of encouraged that to happen. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, and yet here they are supposed to be rather closely tied but they actually feel like they were betrayed by them because they came in on the opposite side and of a lot of that, which is why we have all this complicated Edomite conversations. Right. And that's something Genesis is trying to do a lot of, yeah. of these future enemies. You know, it's going back and telling the origin story and it includes all of this background yep. information, these etymologies of these places and these people to help make sense of that relationship down the road. Yeah. That's all going to continue, and a lot with the Edomites. And, and sure. What's different is that sometimes Edom is brought up, and so is Esau, in the same way that Israel is brought up, which is Jacob's new name. Right. As well as the name Jacob. Right. Oh, yeah. Esau still gets his name spoken, mm-hmm. where a lot of those other tribes, the the origin patriarch of them, doesn't get their name really spoken anymore. Yeah. It might get complicated because I know at least one theologian had the idea that possibly it's because when when Jerusalem was destroyed, the Judaites, the Israel, thought that maybe they were no longer the covenantal people mm-hmm. and that maybe it was being given to Edom, you know, because mm-hmm. it seemed like Edom were the people who were moving into the lands that they were supposed to be in. So it got kind of complicated there in their idea of where do we stand now in the covenantal uh, situation. So... It's, it's, and that all comes back to this this interaction here with Esau. Yeah, right. Um, so you can kind of see why this story even occurs. In the in the scope of Genesis, uh, the the Jacob cycle is the longest one. And mm-hmm. but this does mark that the Jacob cycle with Esau is now done. Yeah. So he's going to go his separate way, uh, and the Jacob cycle with Joseph is going to start beginning. Right. Um, but. The conflicts are not over. No. And this whole Shechem group, uh, the eventually hated Samaritans, are going to cause some problems, and we're going to start getting an idea of what Jacob's offspring are like. And so Genesis 34 is going to start the next part, uh, the next chapter of Jacob's cycle, 
and will eventually lead to what these 12 tribes are. Yeah. So that's what we'll get into next time. Thanks for listening.